<laughs> You're listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. One of Us is a podcast and video network funded all but entirely by donations and subscriptions. We do accept pitches for audio-based or banner ads, but on a case-by-case basis. If you're interested in that, contact us at oneofusnet at gmail.com. With the amount of audio and video content we generate, it is expensive and extremely time-consuming to keep things running. Please go to the webpage oneofus.net and sign up for a subscription at $2, 5 10 or $25 and get a ton of bonus content. One of Us needs and appreciates all your support. This Digital Noise episode also has a video version for subscribers at the brown coat level or above. Become a subscriber and get the extended video version. You know you want it. You know you want to hear about all the movies that maybe you didn't know about before that are coming out. And this week, well, that's pretty much all we got. (laughs) We got a a bunch of somewhat obscure titles to talk about, but I got to tell you, some of them actually were pretty goddamn interesting for my money. There was several in this list. I was like, I am so glad I saw this. Joining me is John Golson. I don't know if he feels the same way. I feel the same. There was a movie in this stack that I... Uh, put on and went, and rolled my eyes. And then like 20 minutes into it, I was like, this is really good. <laughs> I bet I know which one you're talking about, but we'll, we'll see. get to that. We'll see. Yeah. But, uh, you know, this is a relatively short show, all digital noises considered, uh, because there's only what, seven titles, I think this week to talk about. Yeah. And I just curious to know what outside of what we do for digital noise, what's got your attention, what you're watching right now. Oh gosh. So I let, uh, Turner classic movies pick my weekend watching. Um, they did a TCM film festival. I guess they do this every year and I didn't know about it, but it's on, it was on HBO max and Mm. it lasted all weekend and it was curated films either by theme or by filmmaker or by actor with introductions and then post film, uh, interviews and discussions and lost footage and things like that. And it was great. And I watched um, taking of Pelham one, two, three for the first time, which was fantastic. I watched his girl Friday for the first time. I just let, I just let Turner pick my movies over the weekend and, uh, and really enjoyed myself. So yeah, it was really cool. I just have had one of those times that there's just so many DN titles flying into my inbox in the last week and a half that mostly what i've been watching is that a mm-hmm. uh, lot of stuff for your next show <laughs> in fact some really good stuff uh including uh the the final countdown it's a you know it was weird i feel like that dvd who released that originally anchor bay or blue underground uh, it, the new one is blue underground it felt which ubiquitous like i felt like i always saw that at best buy i always yeah. saw that dvd like everywhere i've never seen the movie Oh, well, you'll get to, because it's on your list for the next stack. (laughs) Okay. Uh, I actually, my spare time was spent, I had seen so many friends who had never seen Babylon 5 before, and Mm -hmm. because it's on HBO, they were watching it, and I loved it when it was originally out, but I've never seen any of it since then. I was like, you know what, fuck it, I'm gonna, like, the past month and a half, I've been doing a rewatch, and I gotta tell you, it's one of those shows that, like, you always remember things fondly and are afraid they're not gonna be as good when you come back to them, like, you won't feel the same way about them. 
Uh, and obviously there's a lot of people who shit on Babylon 5 because of the quality of the effects is, was substandard for the time, but it was a little indie sci-fi production. It really holds up as a show. The writing is one of the best written science fiction shows ever made. And once you get like five episodes into the second season, not to say it's at all bad before that, it just feels more like a typical show. But then you realize everything that's happened before, every episode that felt like a one-off Star Trek, oh, here's yeah. the plot of the week, were all super relevant into what they're building towards. Like everything that had happened was really relevant into building this big story that would go on. And from like a couple episodes into season two, it, it then it's just kind of, oh, oh, this is what's happening. You're in one big story that just goes forward for the the four se- the four all the four seasons. And then the fifth season is kind of an epilogue wrap up. It's because they didn't know they were going to get a fifth season. So it was like, oh, shit, we already finished the story. OK, uh, let's call some of our famous writer friends to come in and write episodes. But kind of remarkable that J. Michael Straczynski, who's also known for doing some other great stuff, like creating the character of Miles Morales. Uh, he wrote all but 11 episodes wait, 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 of the wait, entire wait. show. All right. Wait, you're uh, Brian Michael Bendis. Oh, I'm sorry. You're right. No, no, no. He did. I'm sorry. That's wrong. That was Bendis who did that. My mistake. That's okay. Yeah. I was, my mind was blown for a second. I was like, whoa, wait a minute. But he no, was he, a big Spider-Man writer. He, he, wrote he was Spider-Man a big Spider-Man like writer. Years. And I love his, I love his Spider-Man run. I think it's fantastic. Um, It's one of my favorites. And I also think his Thor run is one of the best Thor runs as well. I think the only other two Thor runs that are half to read are Jason Aaron's run, which went, went on for quite some time and is great. And of course, Walt's. I get Farscape and Babylon 5 confused. Which is the one that has the Peacekeeper Wars? It's, uh, that's Farscape. That's Farscape. Okay. But yeah, I thought uh, Babylon Farscape, 5 kind of ended the same where there was like some TV movie kind of things that tried to wrap it up. Wasn't there's, there? Uh, there's like two or three TV movies. And then there's a whole nother show that lasted like three quarters of a season called Crusades uh, that mm. didn't take off. And I never saw any of Crusades. So I had no opinion. I remember the movies being like, we well, already had a whole season, a wrap up. Why do we need like this just feels like an epilogue to the epilogue. <laughs> I, it's something I've been hearing about the quality of since then. I mean, you couldn't be a geek in the 90s and not hear about Babylon 5. And well, it's on. I, it's all on HBO, so you can check it out. I, I've tried watching the first episode, I think, two or three times, and I've and have just never gotten over the hump. Um, yeah, it's and Farscape's get... the same way with me. Like I've heard yeah. Farscape's really good, and I just it is. I've seen a couple episodes of Farscape and haven't gotten, haven't settled into the groove or gotten to a point where I go, okay, cool, this is what the show's doing. But it's They're always both... been one where I haven't closed the door on it. Much like yeah. actually, much like Star Trek Voyager. Where yeah. I had I had not watched, even though I would claim to be a Star Trek fan, I hadn't watched any Voyager up until it came onto Netflix, and then I watched mm. like the first couple seasons. I haven't made it all the way through Voyager, but I was like, no, this is good. That's the only Star Trek show I never finished, I, and it wasn't because I was disliking it. It was just the time in my life I lost track, and for note, it was like, fuck, I don't even know what's going on. Yeah, uh, there was a point they were going more and more into the continuing story because it really worked so well on Deep Space Nine when they were doing that. Which, by the way was all stolen completely from Babylon 5. In fact, for any who have any doubts, Paramount settled out of court with J. Michael Straczynski, a lawsuit against them for basically whole hog stealing the concept of Babylon 5 for Deep Space Nine and and many of the things that happen in it. So uh, I would call that proof. But yeah, Babylon 5 is one of those shows when you start it, start it while you're working on something else. Like you're like, okay, well, I got to, I'm kind of something else I can, I can watch something while I'm working. So it's kind of on in the background. Cause it's like, at first it's like, yeah, it's fine, but it's another, 
yeah sci-fi sh- television show it's like yeah it's good uh, the character designs are great but like nothing to write home about like nothing that you go oh this is bad and you got to suffer through it to get to the good part no it's still good but when it gets to the great part it's not long it's like like i said early in season two and before you know it you're like that's all you want to watch <laughs> anyway we got mo- movies to talk about we got blu-rays to talk about john yes I think we're going to start off by talking about a film that I never heard of until Quentin Tarantino in ni- the mid 1990s first showed it at in here in Austin. He used to do these like, oh, here's my favorite films that I own 35 millimeter prints of uh, at, at a local theater that no longer exists where you would get a pass. And it was like one to three days. I, he did a bunch of them, but I think it was at the very first one that he showed this movie, Switchblade Sisters, which he has always said is one of his all-time favorite movies, like alongside stuff like Django, where he's like, stuff he's like, I want everyone in the world to know this exists. And, you know, Django I never heard of till Tarantino talking about it, sought it out, literally just watched it today, <laughs> again, because they put out a 4K, <laughs> which is very nice. And... That was so good. And so I'm like, oh, well, now I'm excited for Switchblade Sisters. And back when I saw it, when he put it, because he re-released it in DVD under the Rolling Thunders picture label on DVD in 96, I thought, okay, well, this wasn't as good as I was hoping it was going to be with all the hoopla, but maybe I'm just not in the right place for this. So I haven't seen it since then, John. Uh, so re-watching it again, which now it's being put out by Arrow in a really with a really nice a new art cover and lots of bonus features. I was like, okay, like it's been a while. (laughs) I'm ready to give this another shot. I gotta say I did in fact enjoy it much more this time, but I still don't quite get all the excitement. (laughs) I think for me, it's, you know, it's a girl gang movie and it follows, uh, kind of the story of, um, of, of a a girl gang. Duh. They're sort of like, they're sort of like the, um, the property or the sister gang of this like gang of dudes, like a dude run gang. And they they basically end up breaking off and, uh, and showing that they can operate independently and do their own thing. I think the deal with switchblade sisters now having a good 25 years from the last time I saw it, which was, which was on that release. Um, I think that it's just a matter of the characters are a little more well-drawn. Like even if even the background characters and characters that don't have a ton of screen time are pretty well filled in, like they're you, you have a sense of who they are kind of as a person. And I think Mm -hmm. a lot of exploitation films, especially in the gang genre that you kind of have like your main character and maybe like his best friend or side character. And you kind of know the bad guy or the girl. And that's about it. And in this, I it really does you do have these lead characters, but even the other characters that fill out the ensemble have a life and a personality of their own. That, that to me is probably the biggest difference in something like switchblade sisters as an exploitation film. Um, you know, it's, it's never, I I don't, it's never boring, but it is, it is as quaint as you would expect a seventies exploitation film about girl gangs to be. (laughs) And the first half hour, you're like, wow, this is really like, not okay from a you know from a modern standpoint mm-hmm. like this is kind of feels kind of misogynist and then the movie take kind of takes you by the throat and goes yeah that was the problem we don't want things to be like that we were going to be our own thing so the girl gang that's called the dagger debs because 
the uh the the main male group are called the silver daggers when they break off then they're called the jezebels which is still question mark but like it's definitely like we don't need men to do our own thing becomes very much the theme and 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 then you're like okay all right i, I give it to you film you recovered and in fact the director famously was going for that like that was a thing that was important to him was to tell stories that were more you know uh, he's a kid of the 60s it was like okay i want this to be a a message in my exploitation films but one note that i never realized before and i just stumbled across this so there's a scene where they go to like gv hall because they're all high school kids mm. which is also weird and creepy because they're having sex regularly with much older dudes yeah uh, but there's like this big lesbian warden who's like rapey and stuff. And that's this actress who at the time was a very well-known actress, singer, comedian named Kate Murtaugh, who is really famous for more than anything for being the person on the front and back covers of Super Tramp's biggest album, Breakfast in America. She's like the cover star of that album as a waitress. He's like holding a dish. We're like, oh, that was her? Holy shit. <laughs> she's the girlfriend when he says take a look at my girlfriend <laughs> i don't know i don't know yeah probably Sorry, not because she was still like i'm gonna pepper about the same as she did in this movie pepper so. the episode with super tramp jokes that nobody will care about but <laughs> yeah i i got it it's fine we do the show for us john uh -huh. it's for us <laughs> but i i think there is some fun to be had here uh, most even if you're like not into the I guess the the periodness of the film, the how, you know, getting to the obscure qualities like that. There's a, God, who is it? One of the actors in here was from something else, like a television show, right? Oh, yeah, that 70s show. Um, the, the, the main dude's best friend is played by, right. oh gosh, what's his name? Don Stark. Yeah, there you go. Don Stark, who played, um, who played uh, uh, on that 70s show. I can't remember, but yeah, he was like the, uh, the red haired girl's dad. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And he looks much different here. Obviously, yes. but He was in first Star Trek, first contact, John Carter, and he voiced Rhino in, uh, the Spider-Man nineties animated series. Yeah, He looks like Rhino. I could see him kinda, playing like live action. Kind of does. does. Uh, but yeah, I think ultimately this is kind of fun. I mean, you, you have to push back past a bit of datedness and I see that, if you're going to go, I want to watch some of the better super zero budget like exploitation films of its era of the 70s era. This is indeed one of the better ones. You know, I mean, it is fun. It has some real surprises that happen during it and some points where you're like, oh, that's where the budget went. But you did it well. There's like a kind of big city riot at the end, which is much more impressive than it even needed to be. <laughs> yeah. The, anyway, then you have a. Um... The other thing I, I was reading about, and because I didn't really have the context for it, was um, apparently the lead, uh, Robbie Lee, who plays the the main one. She's kind of like, um, she's kind of cast against type. Apparently, she was known for being like really chipper and upbeat because she is kind of like smaller, more petite. And she is more like, she doesn't, <laughs> her energy that comes across as dangerous is all performance because there's nothing about her, her stature or persona or anything that exudes danger and uh they they apparently really um got a lot from casting against type as far as mm. as far as casting her who is known for playing uh bouncier but more bubbly characters and putting her mm. in like this villainous role i don't know um uh, and uh, another note uh donut who's one of the girl gang was lenny bruce's daughter oh Kitty wow bruce yeah 
Uh, but all right, so you're like, well, okay, fine, that's great. You talked about the film. I've seen the film. What's on it? All right, so it's Arrow, so it's a nice set. It's got audio commentary by Sam Dayan and Kit Cat Allinger, who's a regular commentator on these things. Uh, there's a 40 minute We're the Jezebels, which is a making of piece, a new making of piece here, which interviews a lot of the surviving people. Uh, Gangland, the location of Switchblade Sisters, about seven minutes, which you can imagine that everything looks pretty goddamn different now. <laughs> oh, look, there's a Starbucks and another Starbucks. Uh, there's Jack Hill and Joanne Nail at the Grindhouse Film Festival for about nine and a half minutes. That's an archival piece as well from 20, uh, 2007. Uh, there's an interview with Jack Hill, Robbie Lee, and Joanne Nail, which is another archival material. Uh, all the archival stuff has a little bit of video quality issues, but it's not too bad. And there's a ton of trailers for this and other soon-to-come-out movies from Arrow. There's still galleries. And then an insert booklet with cast and crew stuff, essays. But yeah, this is a... You know, if you've never seen it, you should check it out for yourself. I would not argue with you if you're like, this is now one of my new favorite movies. It it's looks never great. been at yeah, it looks fantastic. It's never been at that tier for me. Like, oh, I want to, can't wait to show all my friends this. But I know people who it is for mm -hmm. that. So, sure. Let's move on to our next one, which is a movie I've never seen. And I got to say, I'm, I, I kind of... I asked for A Lovely Way to Die from Kino because I was like, okay, this has got some things about it I'm really curious. So, it's a sort of like swinging detective movie with Kirk Douglas from 1968 that's described as a crime neo-noir. But I'm like, isn't this a lot more like In Like Flynn with James Coburn than it is a crime neo-noir? Because it's all like, hey, baby, what's going on? Yeah, baby, yeah. Which I love that shit, man. I love that 60s, like, swinging spy detective stuff. It's all so absurd. So I was excited to kind of see this one. Uh, I, I was relatively unfamiliar with David Lowell Rich, who is largely a, a television director. He's done lots of other films as well, but mainly stuff that never really took off, like the Concord sequel, Airport 79, uh, or or The Horror at 37,000 Feet, or Satan's School for Girls. <laughs> but I found this kind of weirdly charming. And you've got Kirk Douglas, who is the hard nails police detective. Uh, he, he's like the take-no-shit guy who... When basically they're like, hey, you know what? Things are times are changing, buddy, and you can't just go beating up people. They're like, fine, I quit. So obviously you're rooting for him, rolls eyes. But <laughs> it was a different time, mind you. So he gets an offer from this uh, lawyer that he's worked with before to protect Re this woman, uh, Rena, played by the just startlingly gorgeous Sylvia Koshina, who's a Yugoslav-born Italian actress who was also uh, is best known for being the bride of Hercules in Hercules and Hercules and Unchained, for the record. Anyway, so uh, she's about to go on trial because it appears that she murdered her wealthy husband. And wealthy, we mean, whoa, super, super wealthy. And people are saying, oh, she had a lover. They got together to come for his money. Kirk Douglas is like, I don't believe her at all, but I also totally want to have sex with her. <laughs> Which is, once again, kind of a staple for films at this time. Like, this stuff. Another, another staple that I've never participated in is grabbing a woman by the shoulders and going, mm, like, kissing her really hard and, like, shoving her back. That thing where it's like, just the kiss looks like it's painful. Yeah. Where they're like the... <laughs> just grab her by her shoulders and... <laughs> so it, it's him sort of investigating the 
what's going on here while also trying to have sex with her while also thinking, well, I don't approve of any of this. And I, you know, if you take away all the stuff that's wildly inappropriate by today's standards, it's a fun, goofy little swinger spy movie with lots of sort of, hey, let's go see the swinging band and hang out with swinging people type aspects to it that are really fun. And Eli Wallach as the lawyer. I mean, I I genuinely enjoyed this film because it is from that staple of like, like I said, the James Cove in like Flynn or even the president's analyst that I really enjoy. It's like a, uh, when I was a kid, I would, I would read anything, just anything I could find. And occasionally, like, you'd find an old box that would have, like, some old paperbacks in them where the, I don't know if you remember, like, the paperbacks would have the red, they were, they were like, they used to do, like, red, green, or yellow on the, uh, on the side of the paper. So, like, oh. on the opposite side of the spine, the papers would be, like, lined in, like, red or whatever. I don't know why they would hmm. do that. Was that Anyways, an indication that it wasn't for kids or I, something? I have no idea. But, you know, this old, like, mildewy paperbacks, that this is, like, one of those. It reminded yeah. me of, like, some man's man paperback from the 60s yeah. that was just disposable. It's very uh, Playboy magazine in that it's yes. it's both... It's, it's both old white men and also like mod culture at yeah. the same time. So you, you do have like, you know, it's for the, the gentleman's gentleman. It's very, very, I couldn't stop thinking about Playboy magazine while I was watching it because of course not. they feel yeah. like they have the same energy. Like they yeah. feel born of the same time and ideas and everything like that. Like it feels like a movie where you could have read a serialized version of a lovely way to die in like old playboys. Um, it's, you know, ultimately though, to me, it's kind of a courtroom drama with all this dressing on it. Like with all this, like swinging sixties dressing on it. I I mean, that's the third act. Yeah. Courtroom drama. And I really thought it was going to be a little bit more. I, I, I kept kind of waiting for it to click into being sexier or more action packed. And when it does kind of click in, it clicks in into being more legal. And I was like, wait, this wasn't what I was asking for. This wasn't what you were promising me. Um, I thought this was real middle of the road. I, 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 um, I respect your love of the, uh, the era that's going on in here, which again is very, there's something so specific about watching people a little bit too old, pretend to be a little too hip. And that's all through this movie. And that's, yeah. Douglas was already like, I think I did the math. He was like 49 when he did this movie. And you're looking at me like, yeah, you shouldn't, you're too old to be playing this part. (laughs) So there's something kind of like, it's, it feels very specific to the sixties and maybe even into the seventies a little bit, that, that weird thing. Uh, And, there is a little bit of charm to that, but just as a movie movie, like just as a, as a piece of work that I was interested and invested in, yeah. uh, I just thought it was real. I just thought it was pretty mediocre outside of sort of the window dressing of the times. It is a film I kept going. I wish this was better yeah. than it was. Like I, this is a movie that I could go like, yeah, I always go, don't remake good movies, remake mediocre movies that had the promise to be good. And this is the movie I'm like, oh, this is the movies like someone should remake and go, oh, we're going to make a period piece set in this period movie <laughs> that's kind of poking fun at it, but like in a very subtle way mm-hmm. and just but go everywhere this movie should have gone and didn't. Yeah. You know, 
Uh, but there is uh, a new audio commentary by uh, two film historians, Howard S. Berger and Steve Mitchell, and then just trailers that are here. But it's out on Blu-ray. Like I said, it, your results are going to vary. I, I, I found this a fun little discovery. It's certainly not an all-time classic gem or anything, but it, I think I thought it was worth checking out. Our next film is a newer film, uh, 2020, by new time director Adam Stovall called A Ghost Waits. Now, this is the film I think you were talking about early on in the... Was this the one you were discussing this that you were like, oh, God, no. This the one I was discussing. Mm -mm. This was not it? This was not it. Okay. This is the one that, for me, I was like, because Arrow, who's putting this out, whenever Arrow puts out a new, brand new film... I don't share all the same tastes of whoever programs those. So a lot of the time I'm like, this is just doesn't really do anything for me. It doesn't go anywhere. I mean, it's weird and there's an audience for that, but this is not my thing. A Ghost Waits was the one that started off like, oh, this is a super low budget, like horror, but ultimately comedy horror film that turns out to be more of a. I thought charming little indie comedy mumblecore film with supernatural stuff going on. I, I And maybe it's just the part of me that still wishes I was that kid in the theater watching Beetlejuice again for the first time. But like, I love that kind of stuff. The story here, McLeod Andrews plays Jack and he's a handyman. He works for this rental company. So he goes in after uh, clients have either moved out or something worse and clean and inspect the houses for the clients. And so he moves into this new house and is right off the bat, his employer who you only ever hear on the phone is like, I don't know what the deal is, man. We can't keep anyone in this house for more than a few months. I have no idea what the deal is. And he goes in there and literally they left all their stuff there. And they're like, what is this? Why is all their stuff there? And the guy's like, I don't know. Just do your fucking job. Becomes clear very quickly. The house is very, very haunted. There is a ghost named Muriel played by Natalie Walker that appears and just wants to scare people the fuck out of the house. And that seems to at first, like it's a slow build as you should do. If you're a professional ghost, if that's your job, it's like, you don't want to jump right in with the big scare. You got to get them scared first and do it. And so we go through the process of seeing him like a little weird. Well, that's peculiar until, and, and you know, he runs out of the house and goes, no, nah, man, I can't lose this job. <laughs> Comes back and she's like, what the fuck are you doing? It's like, I'm sorry, I, I'm not leaving. I got to finish my job. I don't know what to tell you. So maybe we're just going to have to figure out a way to work together here, <laughs> which is a bizarre turn that I did not expect. And it, it turns into kind of a weirdly romantic comedy. I, I know this isn't going to be everything Buddy's thing, but I found this absolutely charming. This wasn't the one that didn't have me from beginning because I actually liked this Loki pretty much all the way through. So uh, I probably thought you probably thought for me saying no, that it meant I wasn't going to like it. I liked it. Okay. Um, it's, you know, we've seen a couple of these now, um, very DIY uh, arrow releases. Um, that was yeah. the one that we watched. That was the horror film that was done by the family, the mom, the, the father and the little girl all started. It was a ghost movie. Can't remember yeah. the name of it. I'm blanking on the name of it too, but we yeah. both really like that. Yeah. And yeah. so here we have another case of them releasing again, something that's very DIY. It's very much like it's one location. It's black and white. It's actors that are <laughs> very green. I'll say yes, um, green. they're very green actors. Think like uh, Kevin Smith's clerks, that level yes. of like green, probably a little bit go, better than that, but where you don't necessarily go, they're a terrible actor. 
but you go, thank God the dialogue is really well written. Yeah. Because <laughs> that is helping. Yeah. Um, I liked this. It, it has a little vibe. It felt to me at times, you know what it reminded me of? It felt like a little bit of a response. Um, and I would be interested in like, I, I mean, I didn't dive into the special features, but I would be interested in finding out if, if it was inspired in part uh, as a response to um, Ghost Story, uh, the one hmm. a few years ago with Rooney Mara. I mean, um, it felt like it was more inspired by, as I mentioned earlier, Beetlejuice, because there's that whole aspect of it that's like, oh, well, the afterlife is basically like a bureaucracy. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it does have some of that in it. I think the thing that that... You know, sometimes there are storytellers that like watch a movie and go, "Oh, I wish that it was like this instead." And it and there are times it reminded me a lot of Ghost Story, except with the thought of like, "But what if they? What if they could communicate? You know, what if it wasn't just like an observer the whole time?" Mm -hmm. um, I I dug this. I I would um. I wouldn't even like couch it as like a lowering of expectations or anything like that. You know we've gotten so force fed by blockbusters that I think that we see, we see less of a certain type of adult movie and we see even less of the DIY movies than we used to. Mm -hmm. And I feel like we used to see a lot more indie DIYs that would kind of like, kind of like rise um, based on the strengths of the talents involved. And we don't see them as often and it's, Real knee jerk. I kind of was thinking about this while I was watching it because I was like, well, the acting's not that great and blah, blah, blah. And it's, and, but I kind of had a, I kind of had a reality check while I was watching it was just like, was this good enough to get picked up by a distributor? Mm -hmm. And it's like, yeah, it was. And it's unfair for me. It's unfair of me to like pick something apart uh, simply because it is so DIY. And I need to, sure. I, I personally, this is a me thing, not a thing about the movie. I need to be more open-minded when it comes to those efforts that are literally no budget efforts. I try to think that I do, but then when I'm, when I'm, I know I'm going to be on the show and we're going to be talking about it critically. I always want to give it a dressing down. I always yeah. want to be like, well, lower your expectations or don't da 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 da. And it's kind of like, I don't know. I, I think man. it's enough if you say this is a zero budget DIY film and under that expectation of what you get from that, it is this. Uh, you know, this is one of the main reasons I started in the past few years actively volunteering to be on people to work with crew on people's short films and stuff because I needed to remind myself of all the work that goes into even a crappy little feature. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. And go, oh, okay, well, like this wasn't shit out. This was a labor of love. No, and this wasn't shit out. And honestly, I hope that Arrow continues to find these um I hope Arrow continues to find and elevate these uh these people working in this mm -hmm. fashion. So yeah, and there's a decent amount of bonus features here, like there are with most Arrow stuff. There's three different audio commentaries, one by the writer-director, one with him and the lead actor, and then one with the whole cast and crew. There's a new video essay by Isabel Castudio called Humanity and the Afterlife in a Ghost Waits for about 15 minutes, where it explores it into the themes and what the stuff that this is based on. Uh Eight interviews with the cast and crew, moderated by critic and pro, uh, programmer T.T. Stern Enzi. That's a new one for me. 
uh, interview and post Q&A with Adam Stovall, moderated by Alan Jones at the Glasgow's Fright Fest in 2020. There's 12 and a half minutes of outtakes, which are genuinely, if you find this film charming, watch the outtakes because they're just add to that charm because you really want to see that these people all really like each other and had a good time making this. And spoiler, they did. Uh, there's Easter eggs that are listed here, little things they hid, and a reversible sleeve with new artwork. Uh, if the first pressing comes with illustrated collectors bo booklet with a new essay about it, but as well, if you're on the Arrow streaming network, which you should be, it's really great and really cheap. It's all of Arrow's releases pretty much for like, I think it's like five bucks a month. It's a pretty solid package. This is on there. Like they've been promoting it more heavily almost with them it being on there than the Blu-ray release. But, you know, if you're not interested in a new streaming network, you can just pick up the Blu-ray and I think it's well worth your time. I'm just curious. I I was unaware of Arrow's streaming network. How do they handle their special features? Do they have those as oh, extras? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. They have all the special fe features are That's available well on the streaming worth looking network, into. which which is super cool. Uh, our next movie is another little indie film, but this one is not from Arrow, and unfortunately is only available on DVD as near as I could tell, at least here in America, and that is Baby Done. And I was interested because it was produced by Taika Waititi, who's been talking about it a lot in interviews, like how proud he was of this film. He's not in it. He didn't direct it. Direct it. it was directed by a guy named Curtis Vowell. And it's a semi-autobiographical film uh with from the writer Sophie Henderson and Curtis Vowell, who are are married themselves, about their own fear of like moving on from like yeah we're let's like keep being able to do whatever we do when we're young we're not gonna get have kids we're not gonna settle down we'll be one of those cool couples it's kind of like that where this couple here Zoe and Tim played by Rosia Rosie Rose Matafeo and Matthew Lewis are like one of those couples. They go out and they do crazy shit. They're really into like climbing trees for some reason, like comp competitive tree climbing, which I had never had any idea was a thing, but maybe it's a specific to New Zealand thing. And she discovers she's pregnant, but she goes so just crazy into denial that she wants her life to get even crazier before she has this baby, which of course is a terrible idea. And Tim knows it and is disturbed by it. Uh, he goes into nesting mode. And I think that there's some really funny stuff in this film, but I think it's hampered by one particular thing that you're like, wow, you're kind of an asshole, Zoe, for doing that. I mean, like everything you're doing is so wildly selfish. I mean, I get what you're getting at, but there's not very long in this movie before I was like, oh, for fuck's sakes, get your shit together. Uh, this was the one that I didn't like. And then I, went back to and i i put it on okay. i turned it off uh and then i put it back on and then ended up like really really liking it okay uh i think that it's very much like she's i mean she's a character that's it was hard for me to see her as an asshole because she's terrified she's yeah. so scared of losing her own identity and I thought she was really funny. I thought, honestly, the first laugh out loud moment I had was Matthew Lewis when they go bungee jumping and she, they have the conversation about her being pregnant when they're about to go bungee jumping. And the, the guy, the bungee jumping coordinator overhears and is like, are you pregnant? She's like, how dare you? Which is a joke <laughs> they go back to a couple times after that. But yeah. it makes Matthew Lewis cry. And he's all strapped in to bungee jump and he's like sobbing as he's about to bungee jump. And I was like, that's a really funny visual to like see somebody like 
just <laughs> emotionally distressed about to go bungee can, jumping. Can I point as well, if you don't recognize the name Matthew Lewis, this is the guy who played Neville Longbottom in the Harry Potter movies, who, of course, was one of the most awkward-looking kids ever, who the moment he hit puberty looked like James fucking Bond. Yeah. And I didn't recognize him. I was like, oh, the, oh my God, that's Matthew Lewis. Holy shit. Because he, he's a strikingly good-looking man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you wouldn't expect that from Neville Longbottom. <laughs> I, I really dug this. I think a lot of movies... I think I've seen this movie a lot. There's a lot of, like, Away We Go and movies like that that are about the young couple going, will our lives change? Will things be the same? There was something about the details of their lives that were so... It, there's a fine line between, like, quirky and realistic. And I think mm-hmm. Baby Dunn finds that line because... Like, for instance, the professional tree, she's a professional, uh, like she cuts limbs and stuff as a profession. So as an offshoot of that is her like professional tree climbing stuff where she really enjoys like getting in the harness and climbing up the trees. And it was details like that that felt very, they feel like it, it makes people feel more real. It made, it made the little tiny details feel more real. The people, her, the friends that she has, her parents, the people in their lives um, everything about it in comparison to other movies that are also about, oh my God, I'm going to have a baby. What am I going to do? Which again, sure. we've seen it a thousand times, but we've also seen heist movies a thousand times and action movies a thousand times. So it's, it's viable. It's a plot that people have used and it works. What elevates this one to me was that I, I liked the comedic manicness of her getting increasingly dangerous and, and honestly selfish. Um, and I liked the uh, I liked the color of it. I liked the 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 things in it that were unusual uh, that didn't mm-hmm. feel they didn't. It, it I've seen this movie studio crafted a thousand times. This was the first time I'd seen it in a little bit of a different way. Um, yeah, and I really liked it. I actually looked up Rose Montefiore's, um, uh HBO special she has called Horn Dog and watched a little bit of it after this. Um, I will say she's better in this movie than she is in the special. At least I didn't finish the special, but she seems really nervous in the special. And she's talking like a million miles an hour. Um, so, but I liked her as an actress. I'd like to see her in more, more things. I actually thought she was really good in this too. It's just, like I said, I, there's a point where like at first it's funny. And then it's like, oh my God, you're like genuinely a putting your baby in danger and b like treating your, the father of this baby, like absolute shit just mm-hmm. being a terrible terrible person to him uh, and he's very sympathetic you're yeah. like oh my god the g- poor guy he's trying his best to be the nicest person in the world nothing is working but you know i get it i i just think it got under my skin a little bit with that stuff maybe i identified too much with the dad not i do not have a baby on the way I want she to be very yeah about that. she is almost like a um like a Larry David character, like a Seinfeld character, like a Curb Your Enthusiasm character, and that she's she's she is really motivated by her own fears and selfishness and stuff like that. But yeah, I, I, I did find very funny. There's a point where they like temporarily split up, and she starts dating a prego file, which I guess is a thing. Yeah, where like guys like they met online because he just wants to date really pregnant women. <laughs> that I thought was really, really funny. But yeah, I don't dislike this film. I just didn't connect with me as much as I wanted it to, considering how much I liked it in the first 30 minutes. I think it went the other way for me, where I really liked it, and then I started liking it less and less. Uh, as it yeah, went it was the exact opposite for me. 
Let's move on to another one, which is not a comedy at all, but it is another little small drama. Uh, My Little Sister, the 2020 Swiss drama film that uh, competed for the Golden Bear at the 70th, 70th Berlin International Film Festival and was selected as a Swiss entry for the Best International Feature Film at the 93rd Academy Awards, but it was not nominated. This is a, man, this was kind of dark and like another film where I'm like, I get what emotionally this female lead character is going through and how difficult it is, but there's a point where I just kind of stopped sympathizing with her because she's so horrible. Uh, she is dealing, she's a, um, she's a playwright, her twin sibling, uh, it's Nina Haas is the playwright, her, her, playwright. her, her twin sibling, uh, Lars Eidinger is a, uh, famous stage actor who's also gay and famous and like out and gay who has cancer. And, you know, when we meet up, it appears like maybe he's in remission, but it's still like he's in bad shape and it's her basically upending her life and everything in her life because of her connection to her brother. And this does not go anywhere happy. (laughs) I'm just saying, uh, I found this well shot extremely well acted um not overly interesting uh, and i was i always try and sh- you know anything it says okay it was our country's submission for academy award i'm like okay they thought that was their best movie that year let's check it out and it's fine i guess it is it's fine <laughs> it's fine <laughs> it doesn't offer like a lot of there's no real it, there's no real surprises it's it i think the i think what the hook of it was trying to be that separated it from other cancer dramas was let's look at the effect that it has on the relationship of the married couple apart mm-hmm. the from sister and her yeah, husband, the sister yeah. and the husband, apart from the relationship between the brother and the sister. But we just watched that movie. Like you and I mm-hmm. just reviewed it on digital noise. Uh, and it was the, so much better than this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my, my good friend or my, what was the name of that movie? I, yeah, the one with the, the one with Casey Affleck and Jason yeah. Siegel. Um, I already forgot the name. Yeah, and it. and that movie, being though. that being based on a true story as well, I think, you know, there was stuff in it that that was more emotionally impactful and covered a lot of the same ground in regards to you have a situation where you're seeing how it ref, how it affects the marriage to what extremes it affects the marriage. Not to compare contrast too much, but um, this left you me can't help it. It left me cold. It, versus the yeah. other one, this one really left me cold. And again. It's executed fine, but it's executed clinically. Like it's sort yes. of like it's it's sort of clinically sound across the board in editing and cinematography and acting, and just flatline, just not compelling really in any way. I didn't yeah, find. I, um, I didn't either, and I think that, like I said, I think both the performances are strong. Although it's definitely about her more than it's about him. Mm-hmm. I I think he's honestly a little bit boring he's just kind of a mildly cliched gay man yeah uh that we don't get a lot of depth from uh she gives a performance that's actually really interesting but doesn't ever really feel like it leads anywhere conclusive or there's no sense of like resolving to this story there's one truly interesting scene where uh her husband takes him paragliding and then it's not interesting. You're like, oh, this is going to be good. And then it's not good. It's like, oh, well, that's really, that's where, okay. It's just kind of unrelentingly gets darker and darker, but in a light, 
dark way, like just kind of, okay, this is normal. It's very naturalistic. And some people like that sort of thing. I like to see something with a little more, I'm watching a movie to it than someone's travelogue of their cancer year. So <laughs> I, I just thought this was meh. Yeah, I can, I can agree with that. Uh, I, it's, it is, <laughs> it's like, it's like the bare minimum of what you expect from a f foreign art film about cancer. <laughs> well, let's move on to something a little more exciting. And admittedly, this was exciting, I think, largely because of a gimmick that was involved with watching it. And that is Dynasty 3D. And no, they're not making the old Dynasty television shows 3D. That's, I, I wouldn't watch it if they were, because outside of Joan Collins' movie Homework, I'm just not that interested in Joan Collins. But uh, I'm the less said about that the better dynasty is an old school Shaw brothers style martial arts film uh, with nonstop action and almost no plot. <laughs> now that's fine. Like that's not for everyone. What makes dynasty stand out? It's dynasty 3d. They've remastered this thing so that you can watch it either with blue or red, blue and red glasses. I forget what those are called. Uh, we'll put those on watch that way, which come with the, 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 the Blu-ray, or if you have a 3d television, it's remastered for that as well. I do not have a 3d television back before my cats chewed through my, uh, PlayStation, uh, vir virtual reality helmet. I've could have watched it in 3d, but that killed that option. Stupid cats. Anyway, uh, I watched this, so in the old school blue and red, it's this royal emperor's son who gets accused of treason, and he's going to fight basically everyone in the world. And it's got really decent stunts. Like, the action is good by Ying Chia Han, who did Fist of Fury and the Big Boss with Bruce Lee, amongst many other things. Um, it it's not boring in terms of if you're here for martial arts, like I said, they're well shot martial arts. The film is the most shot for 3d film I have ever seen in my entire fucking life. Like it's nonstop in the camera. Oh, here's the thing in the camera coming. It's coming at you. They're shooting like, arrows at you and throwing swords nonstop. at you and kicking at Everything. you. Yeah. And doing shoot setting up shots so there's something right in the foreground of it with the action going on in the background. So the foreground thing really gives you that sense of like the 3D perspective. And I gotta say, on that level, and that I do like the old uh, 70s martial arts films, I kind of had a kick-ass time with this title. It's not a great movie, but it's kind of a great 3D movie. It reminds me a lot. Growing up, there was a, a UHF station, Channel 39. It eventually became like, I think, UPN or whatever, and then whatever that turned into. Um, but Channel 39 was KHTV Gold in Houston, Texas. And on Sunday afternoons, it was either monster movies all day or it was kung fu movies all day. I was never the kung fu movie guy. My cousin was. Like, my, my cousin Jared was. That was me. He was, was all the kung, the kung fu, fu movies. And this, <laughs> this reminded me, and I haven't seen a movie like this in a while, because the movies they played on Sundays weren't, like, it was rare if they played, like, an actual, like, Bruce Lee movie or some, like, minor classic of kung fu. It was always mm -hmm. stuff like this. It was always stuff like Dynasty. <laughs> yeah. And so it reminded me a lot of those, like, those matinee Sunday afternoon UHF uh, Kung Fu movies. Totally. I totally. actually really appreciate it. So I don't have a 3D TV anymore. Um, and I, I used to, uh, and I ended up selling it, but I, I, even with the red and blue glasses could tell that it was pretty good 3D. I would like to have seen it in, um, on a regular, you know, high, higher tech 3D TV. They do have that setting 
on the disc so you can watch mm-hmm. it that way. Um, but if you don't, they just give you the red and blue. And the red and blue, I could really tell, like, there were scenes with a lot of depth. There were scenes where there was, like, grass in the foreground and a guy in the midground and trees in the background and mountains further than that and throwing stuff at the camera and all that kind of thing. Um, so the 3D was good. And then really fascinating 3D special features on here. Um, and I know we haven't quite, we haven't touched on the special features yet, but there's a documentary, like a mini doc about the commercial grade stereoscopic cameras that came out at the time. There's a, another, not a doc. It's so there was a huge department store in Dallas, Texas that took up a whole city block (laughs) and they paid when they did the grand opening of this massive department store, they paid someone to come in and photograph every single aisle in stereoscopic 3d. And so you can tour the department store through these stereoscopic photos, yeah. which is kind of like a view master. Yeah. When you're watching it with the blue, red and blue. It glasses. was that the special features on this are super cool. And if I really kind of wish that this was the harbinger of a whole line of these like 3d archival, uh, yeah. type presentations where you do get a feature, but you also get shorts and little docs and little pieces of, there's a comic book in here. Um, it's an old, uh, it's an old pre-code um, uh, yeah. public domain horror comic that you can the, quote the unquote house read. Of terror. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I really like the total package and I wish I, I, I would like to see this become like sort of a, a side label sub brand where the super 3d stuff um you know, release it in such a way where it's like, you can start to anticipate you're going to get the feature, but you're also going to get all this other cool stuff. I I think total, total package wise, this is pretty cool. The the movie's plot. I got to admit the movie's plot lost me. It is very action heavy. You know, I, there's uh, a quote from Stuart Gordon that says every movie should show you at least one thing that you've never seen before. And there's a part in dynasty where the main bad guy, he has like chainmail armor and he takes it off and kind of snaps it like a slap bracelet. And it forms yeah. this like giant <laughs> so gold cool. cross that he can throw. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, I've never seen that before. <laughs> that was new to me too. <laughs> um, uh, and there's also a, uh, I just want to point out, there's also a um, music video for a song called The Simple Carnival by Jeff Baller, which is produced as an animated short called Go Away, I Like You Too Much, which is also put into 3D here. Mm. But uh, yeah, no, I agree with you. I would love to see more, bring out some of the more archival 3D films. They had to reproduce it completely, even for the anaglyphic, the red and blue glasses to to make it like work as well as it would with new televisions. And the thing is the film itself, like the quality of the original print is terrible. It does not look good. And you can watch it without 3D at all too. That's another option. It still does not look great the way to watch it is with the 3d. So you don't give a shit (laughs) that it doesn't look great, but the 3d does pop like crazy. And I I mean, I'm really, really impressed with how good a job they did with remastering it for uh, televisions now. Cause I was like, yeah, I I had a lot of fun. Uh, Let's move on to our final film of the day, which is doors and not the doors. This is not the Jim Morrison story. This is a new science fiction film being released by Epic. That is a kind of anthology. It's not really, it's one of those, like it's one story, but that keeps separating into short stories of what people are experiencing during it. And basically millions of these black moving gelatinous looking doors from outer space appear everywhere. They look like, uh, they look like woolly willy. 
When you take like the, what? like Wooly Wooly, when you have the little magnet pin, you know, Wooly Wooly is like the face with the magnet pin and you, oh, yeah. you take the magnet shavings and you like drape them up, but you can sit there right. and play with the magnet and the, and the shavings. And they, the doors look like magnet shavings being manipulated by, uh, by a magnet, iron shavings being manipulated by a magnet. And, that and, is and maybe how the effects were done. I don't on. know, but um, it could have been, but it's kind of what it looks like. And it's just different enough to make it kind of stand out it's not like just like a 2001 black block but they're appearing all over the place and people are trying to figure out what's going on like in our first sequence we see a bunch of students in school who are like in detention and the teacher leaves for me like it's a phone call okay i'll be back don't do anything don't change anything and they discover oh shit there's like some kind of crisis going on outside as this is first happening but it kind of takes place over the space of years and years as things are going and the thing is anyone who goes in one of these doors because you go and you can be grabbed and go through it uh, I mean, they don't know what happened to them. And as the movie goes on, it's like, oh, a few people came back and some seriously weird shit happened. So it's like a high concept sci-fi movie that I think the biggest problem here is it never really finishes its high concept. None it of just the feels segments. like the. It just feels like the first chapter of something that was like, okay, well, we, we just never found a way to wrap this up. So we'll just be like, isn't it mysterious? I mean, I think it's... Oh, if this had had an ending, I would have maybe really liked it. But it, by the end, I'm like, okay, well, like, why would you even make this if you just had no idea where you were going with it? I would have to assume that it's one of the first, uh, like, pandemic movies uh, that was shot during the pandemic. There's a ton of usage of empty streets in L.A. and around the world, actually. Like, lots of footage of, like heavily populated areas with no one out and about. Um, right. So I have to assume that they, that they probably conceived and shot most of it when they realized, Hey, we have access to completely empty streets. What can we, what can we bring to life that can use this once in a lifetime situation? Um, gosh, I sure did like the vibe of, of a lot of the segments Absolutely none of them have a satisfying payoff, if no. a payoff at all. The first, the not spoiler alert, because I don't. I always feel like things that don't, <laughs> things that aren't in the movie, aren't a spoiler. There's yeah. no ending to the first segment; it just stops. And I was like, okay, we're going to come back to that. We never do, but no. all of them kind of follow that path where it's all set up and no resolution. Any one of the any one of the four to five, I think there's four different. Uh, vignettes that are in this any one mm -hmm. of the four could have been the inciting incident of a movie on its own and just none of them are written to a point of completion and it makes for a really unsatisfying total package especially yeah. because there's good in here there's enough good in here to make you mad and frustrated that it's not yeah. better. <laughs> That's just it. They set up each one of the segments sets up a really interesting mini story and we'll get to about the halfway point before it starts where are you going with this? And then has no ending. There's one I really was enjoying with like basically scientists who've been studying this have found a way that there's a, a, a time amount of time you can go through a door and come back before you can't come back. Uh, and so they go through and it gets very David Lynchy and very like, Oh, this is cool. Where's it going? It's not going anywhere. It doesn't add up to anything. Like there's another one with a guy who like befriends a door. Cause mm -hmm. he's figured out a way using scientific electronic equipment to talk to a door and is like talking back and forth with it. That like, wow, that's cool. Where's that going? It's going nowhere. 
it has nowhere to go. And it's just frustrating because it is cool ideas that, you know, are the beginning of writing a movie and not even the middle. You know, it's four beginnings of movies yeah. with, with no second act to yeah. follow up on. It's a very frustrating watch. And I, I hope that these... I hope that these filmmakers are able to channel the, they captured a vibe at times. Mm -hmm. I just hope they're able to channel that into something that's more satisfying in the future. Yeah. Uh, Cause like I said, I don't think this is badly filmed at all. It's obviously low budget, but they do a really good job with the budget that they have. They're very good at setting up shots. The cinematography is really nice. A lot of the effects are creative and different. It just felt one of the most rushed things to production I've ever seen. <laughs> guys, y'all should have sat on this longer and, and, and done a finished movie. It felt like guys who've never made anything but short films who are like, well, let's just make four short, like horror shorts because horror shorts generally don't really have an ending or resolution. I mean, I can barely think of any that do. And uh, this felt like that. Yeah. All right. Well, that's it. That's it for Digital Noise. Thank you, John, for joining me. Do you have any projects that you want to uh, pimp to? I the, uh... do. I just finished Ooh. my pinup for the Lucy Chaplin uh, aerobicide crossover to help uh, uh, one of uh, Terry Parr, who's a um, Texas comic creator. He does a, a comic called Aerobicide about a ninja aerobics instructor. Um the, cool, he sure, he contracted COVID at the start of the pandemic, roughly at the start, Ooh. and has some pretty big medical bills to take care of. And comics is his only livelihood. And so uh, Drew Edwards of Halloween Man has gotten together with Terry, and they put together this um, this benefit comic. Uh, I'll have a pinup in it. I don't have pages in it, but I have a pinup in it. And if you go to Indiegogo and search for Aerobicide or search for Lucy Chaplin, you'll find it. It's still running right now. Um, it'll probably be running all the way up until I don't I don't think it has a cutoff date on it. I think it's running all the way up until delivery. I'm not 100 percent sure, but I do know it's still currently running. So I would say give to that if you can. Awesome. Thank you, John. Uh, and I will be back with more digital noise in probably I'm looking at like two weeks now. I just handed a stack off to Aaron. So like, I don't know how long that's going to take, but as soon as possible <laughs> in the meantime, thank you for watching. Thank you for being a, a fan. And uh, if you're watching the video, a subscriber to one of us and uh, yeah, we'll see you guys later.